So let's talk about the situation behind this story. If I'm in a creative writing class teaching my students, I would call this the backstory. Like, what's going on before we get to the heart of the, the story that we see unfold behind us? First, you hear that this is the third day. After the third day, Jesus came to this wedding. He had been previously located in Judea and had come with his disciples traveling to this wedding. But three is certainly not accidental. We do a lesson in my creative writing class talking about the importance of three in literature. Uh, We talk about things like ready, set, go, or beginning, middle, end, or even, you know, it translates over to um, other texts that are favorite and familiar, such as The Wizard of Oz. Uh, After all, come on, tell me, what is she afraid of in, in the forest? She's afraid of lions and... Oh my, so there's three there. So there's three all over the place. Um, moms, you may know this. If your kids are not behaving, you better do uh, so-and-so. By the time I count to three, one, two, and, you know, depending on how patient you're feeling that day, that two is dragged out or is really quick before you get to the three. So three is everywhere in literature. In the Bible, It is present enormously. When I first read that on the third day he came to this wedding, probably you were thinking on the third day he rose again. Because, indeed, that is the most predominant, absolute embodiment of three in the Bible. It took three days for him to be in the grave and to rise again. And of course, at this point in the Bible, that resurrection had not happened. But three is used here to direct our attention in that focus. Also, something you need to know about the backstory is something about Eastern weddings. Weddings were very different during this time period than what we are used to now. First of all, a typical wedding would last anywhere from three days to a week. Okay, three days to a week. Brides and grooms, uh, let's mainly say brides and families of brides, can you even imagine planning all of the festivities to take up three, four, five, six, seven days? It was all your responsibility to have entertainment, um, to have lodging, to have food, to have drink, uh, to have all of that planned out. Uh, one of my very best friends got married this past summer, and she is a super organized young lady, but still, just that planning of the five or six hours from ceremony through the end of the reception about did her and imagine planning for three days to a week. The other interesting thing about, about weddings during this time is that the focus was not the bride. The focus was the groom. Okay, can we just imagine a world where it was all on the groom? I mean, think about it. All of the wedding industry is about the bride. Yeah, the groom has to show up, but he's wearing a tux. Like, his whole decision thing is about what color, and frankly, he's probably not making that decision. She is. Okay, can we be honest about that? Um, Everything else is about the bride. Okay, the dress, the veil, um, the, the girls and what they're wearing, you know, usually pretty tacky bridesmaids dresses all designed to make the bride look prettier. Um, all of these things, the flowers, the music, it's mostly about the bride. So imagine a culture where the groom was it. The bride was just, 
you know, a needed piece, but definitely not the focus. You know, it wouldn't be, here comes the bride. It'd be, here comes the groom, okay? And, and all of the focus on him. Everybody, oh, look at how great he looks. Oh, man, he's, you know, he's really leading the show over there. You know, when he'd come into the room, all eyes would be on him. Oh, who's that girl by him? Oh, that must be the bride. Oh, whatever. You know, that was the focus. And so it was a completely different atmosphere. The other interesting thing about this particular wedding is what historians and biblical experts have tried to figure out as to whose wedding it was. We don't know. We don't have any naming ever. We have a location. That location is is fairly generic. It doesn't have any apparent symbolic meaning. But we can assume this. At this particular wedding, it was possible that the individual getting married, either the bride or the groom, was related to Jesus. And how can we presume that? Mary is there and active, and through the whole story, she is doing more than just having a guest role. She is present first. She is coordinating, you know, services. She is aware that the wine is gone. And Mary would not be so functionally prominent in just anybody's wedding. Probably it is a relative. Some experts presume it could be a sibling of Jesus. Whoever it is, this is an important wedding for the family and important in many other ways as we're now going to check out. So as a first look into the actual text, let's look at Mary's role. I already said that it's probably a relative because she has such a prominent place in what is happening there. Um, But let's see what else she does here. In fact, besides Jesus, she has the biggest role in that story. She is the one who notifies about the wine. She is the one who facilitates the setting forth of a new event in the unfolding happenings. And yet, if you think back to the verse that I read, her name is never mentioned. Mary's name, the name Mary, M-A-R-Y, is never mentioned. It is his mother. It is Jesus' mother. It is woman. That is an interesting feature of the text here. When a character in creative writing stories is not named by an author, it is usually for one of two reasons. First, to make the individual so universal, so generic, that a reader could identify with him or her without having to stumble over a name that identifies that individual specifically. And the second reason is to emphasize the relationship of that unnamed individual to a named individual. So let's look at this situation here. Mary is never named by her formal name. And yet she is called his mother, Jesus' mother, woman. And so her identity here and her role in this story is, yes, as an important piece, second only to Jesus, but related to Jesus, in association with Jesus. In other words, having no importance of her own as a human being other than, in this situation, being the mother of Jesus, which is pretty huge. 
imagine the responsibility that she has had on her heart ever since the angels told her that she would be bringing forth the Son of God. And now here he is, all grown up, and now they are at this wedding, and her identity in this text is tied to him. That's pretty huge. Notice what she says. She says, there is no more wine. She says, there is no more wine. That, from the English teacher point of view, is a declarative sentence, a declaration, an announcement. In other words, it is your standard sentence. It just states some kind of fact, some kind of situation. There is no more wine. She does not have an interrogative sentence, which is known as a question. There's no more wine. Hey, what are you going to do about it? There is no imperative. There is no more wine. Do something. It is simply declarative. She says, there is no more wine. So what is, what is that about? Like, why does she not follow it up with a question or an order, a command? It's almost as if she knows he can do something about it. If you look between those lines, her not ordering him or asking him shows this level of trust, this knowledge that he can do something about it. And so she is simply bringing it to his attention. Maybe she knows he can do something about it because she has seen private acts of his power before. We don't know. Maybe she knows he can do something about it because her faith in him is that big and that profound. We don't know. But what it does come down to is she announces a situation and she waits. Theology professor... Gilberto Ruiz suggests that his response to her, which is, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Ruiz suggests that that is not quite as harsh as it may sound. Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. When some people read that or hear that, they think, well, that was just bordering on a little bit rude, a little bit impatient. He doesn't say, mother, why do you involve me? He doesn't say, I already know, I've got this. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Theology experts suggest that the woman part is just traditional communication uh, techniques for that time being. So there is nothing that is rude or insolent about that response. But that the focus here should be that Jesus is reminding her, his earthly mother, that his hour has not yet come. And that hour is dictated by God. It's not dictated by this earthly presence of not enough wine to serve to these guests who have already had a lot to drink. He, in a quiet way here, is reminding his mother Mary that God is in charge of the timing, that there is a plan, and that that plan is something whose timing is only known by God and therefore only known by Jesus, and that she needs to be patient. And yet immediately after that, she speaks again. So she has said, Jesus, all the wine is gone. 
he has said, why are you involving me? My time's not yet here. And instead of, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to push you, or, um, yep, you've got this, I'm going to back off, she, Mary, turns to the servants, and she says, do whatever he tells you. So imagine that. She's been lightly rebuked by her son here. And instead of taking that personally or feeling awkward or anything, she turns immediately to the servants who are nearby and says, do whatever he tells you. I will tell you that that is not the standard response when somebody has been put kind of in their place. Um, that's not what we would default to thinking she, she should resp- respond by doing. Instead, what she does in saying to the servants, do whatever he says, shows an incredible trust. That, you know what? You're right, Jesus. Your time is in God's hands. The hour when your glory will be fulfilled is up to God. But I so trust you, and I so love you, and I so know the power of what you can do, that I'm telling these servants to do whatever, whatever you tell them. If we could all respond that way, by just saying, yes, Jesus has this. He's got it. We need to follow whatever he says. That'd be pretty awesome if we could live that way. But Mary being willing to do that in this public situation where she brought something to his attention and he quietly pushed her aside and instead of rebelling or squirming in shame, she says to the servants, do what he tells you to do. That is faith. That is humility. And that is the role that the mother of Jesus must play in this story. Because next is what happens. What happens then? I want to point out some of the interesting features here. This turning of water to wine is considered the first public miracle. The first public miracle that Jesus performs. So he was born and he grew up. We have a very, very few glimpses of his childhood, incredibly few. But now the formal specified time of his ministry and his outreach has come. And so this is his first public miracle. I will tell you that in my studies preparing for this message, it is often overlooked as anything very significant. After all, it is literally turning one form of liquid into another. It is not restoring sight to the blind. It is not helping somebody who is paralyzed to walk again. It is not raising somebody from the dead. It is not turning a few fishes and loaves into enough to feed thousands. It is water to wine at a wedding. Because it seems so insignificant, it is often poo-pooed, overlooked. Some denominations don't even care to to mention this story in very much focus because it seems so petty, so trivial. But for every wonderful undertaking, either by human or by God, there has to be a first step. There has to be that first time. Think of all of your firsts in this life. 
the first step, the first word, the first time at school, the first kiss, the first date, the first time you graduated from anywhere, your first job, your first house, all of these firsts may not be as glorious and incredible as the seconds and the thirds and the fourths and the fifteenths. But those seconds, thirds, fourths, and fifteenths can't happen until the first has. So here we have the first public miracle. And whether that means that Jesus has been doing some small ones quietly that haven't gotten attention, or whether this means this is indeed the first, it makes Mary's trusting response, do whatever he tells you, that much more incredible. Because she can't know what he's going to do. She has no idea, but she knows Jesus, and so she trusts. Another note of interest is the jars. So there are nearby six stone water jars that hold between 20 and 30 gallons of water. But more importantly here, these were used for rituals that the Jews had for ceremonial cleansing. It is interesting that in this miracle, Jesus uses something old and gives it a new purpose. That is something we shouldn't look over. That is something we shouldn't just read right past. Because Jesus is a fulfillment of the messages earlier in the Bible. He has come to make a new way. And in this first miracle... He takes something that was old, these jars, that are ritualistic. They hold a whole lot of water, but they're old. They're from previous purposes. He takes them, and he uses them for something new. God's like that. He takes things that are old and gives them a new purpose. And in this story, the jars are part of that. A very interesting feature to this text is, tell me, when does the water become wine? You can't tell me, because we don't know. We do not know. Did you notice that in the story? So he tells the servants to fill the jars with water, and they do. We presume at that point, the water is still water, or the servants would be like, oh my gosh, this water is red, you know? They don't. It's like, it's just normal. So they fill those jars to the brim. And then he says, draw some of that water out and take it to the master of the banquet. That would be kind of like the wedding coordinator, you know, the person overseeing the logistics of this long wedding. So you would presume when they draw some out, when they scoop some out in in little flasks or in buckets or in pitchers, whatever, it's still likely water or the servants would notice that the color and the smell had changed. But between when the servants scoop out that water and when the master of the banquet sips it, it has changed. There is nothing mentioned there as to how that happens. There is no prayer, no magical word, no little jazz fingers that Jesus makes in the sky to say, poof, water is now wine. Nothing, nothing. There's not even a pause in the text. It literally flows from one sentence to another. We have no idea 
when that miracle happened. But it happened. You know, Jesus sometimes in his ministry has the big neon lights moments. But if you notice, he is most comfortable when he is working in small groups one-on-one in the quiet way, making miracles happen. And this absolutely unmentioned moment when water turned to wine is an indication of that very thing. Let's talk about the volume of those jars. So those six jars held between 20 and 30 gallons of water each. That is a lot of water. I was trying to think of a way for you to kind of make this make sense in your mind. So picture yourself in Sam's Club, okay? Our Sam's Club is still staying open, so we'll, we'll go there. So we're all taking a little church field trip down the aisles of Sam's Club, and we turn to the water aisle, and we look up at the shelves. Approximately 2,000 water bottles would be needed to fill those jars. That is a lot of water. That is huge. And it is an interesting contrast here to the fact that we don't even know when this water turns to wine. So as quiet as the miracle is, the volume of water is not quiet. It is huge. And we can only presume that all 2,000 worth of those water bottles worth of water in these jugs turn to wine. That's enormous. So while God can do big neon light, huge drum roll kinds of moments, there are also the quiet ones. And yet how large and widespread can that miracle still be? As big as 2,000 water bottles. So how do those in the story respond to this amazement of water turning to wine? Well, the master of the banquet, again, kind of equivalent to a wedding coordinator, he's the first one to sip the, what the servants bring him. He is stunned. It's like, oh my goodness, this is top-notch wine. This is incredible. And he's kind of surprised. He did not expect that at this later portion of the wedding that this good of wine would be left. You might even presume he's a little indignant. Like, hello, why wasn't this wine up first? You know, because it's better than anything else that was served here. And now when everybody's had a lot to drink and there's been a lot of partying and we're several days into this wedding, now we get this good stuff? What's up with that? So he's surprised. So then he goes to person number two, the groom. Remember, bride doesn't matter. Who's that girl over there? Oh, maybe she's the one who got married. I don't know. But to the groom. He goes to the groom. So the master of the banquet goes to the groom and says, Dude, what's up? Most people serve the best wine first, you know, to make that great impression. And later, when everybody's drunk, you know, they they pull out the, the cheap wine. You know, why not? Because nobody will notice. Hello, That's what was in our agenda for this wedding. You went and saved the best for last. What's up with that? What does the groom say? Nothing. Nothing. There is not a quote, not a paraphrase, nothing from the groom. I'm picturing the groom standing there, mouth open, 
and like, uh, uh, uh. Like, this is kind of one of those can't win, can't lose kind of questions where you're kind of between a rock and a hard place. So he is being, being scolded for saving the best wine for last, and yet it's really good wine. So it's like, hmm, what do I say to this? Like, I didn't have any really good wine to offer these folks, you know, but now there's this really good wine here. So what is the best answer? Uh, nothing. There's nothing to say because the groom has no clue what has happened either. So he is silent. And the third and last reaction we see is from the disciples. The last line, the last verse of the passage I read said the disciples saw and believed. We do not hear words from them, but we get the focus on the most important thing. Two verbs, they saw and they believed. They were watching the whole thing. They heard Mary report that the wine was gone. They saw Jesus have the servants fill those jars with water. And now they see wine. They, for the first time as well, have seen something inexplicable happen. And they also see Jesus claiming no credit for it. He is not saying, yo, I did that, people, look at me. They saw and they believed. They believed enough previously to be his disciples. But they believed more when they saw this happen. There are three applications we can pull from this story. Three things to take with us now, here in 2018. Three things to make our lives richer. Number one, live aware. Live aware. A trendy word nowadays is called mindfulness. It means living with observation keyed in to the little things around us. It means not going through day after day in some kind of a routine that keeps us from appreciating the world around us. It means taking that time. And why do I pull that lesson out of this passage? Pastor Ray Stedman points out in his study of this passage that the word is actually not miracle, but sign that this is the first of the signs that led to the revelation of Jesus and his glory. What is the difference between a miracle and a sign? A sign has a purpose, a focus, an end point. It is where pieces are put together that ultimately show something bigger. A miracle can be just as stunning, but it doesn't necessarily have a link to some final revelation. So the fact that this, yes, miraculous thing happened, but that it is a sign, tells us that signs, these little pieces, fit together. My parents love to do puzzles. And every little piece, by its color and its shape, and its attachment to other pieces come together to form a final picture. Perhaps that is how we need to see this story. That, yeah, it is not all about turning one liquid into another, 
but it is about the beginning, the first piece of the puzzle. And only if we are looking for those signs, those pieces that together have a bigger meaning, can we find anything that is helpful in a long-term profound manner. Jesus didn't randomly presto turn the water to wine. It was the first piece of a puzzle that equaled the journey to ultimately our salvation. And if they weren't looking, the disciples would have missed it because, again, there were no bells and whistles. It was a small moment. We didn't even see the actual moment. So what if we can live aware, live our lives not on autopilot, but on actual appreciation of this world and this life? Right now, how comfortable are you in these chairs? How nice the warmth is in this sanctuary when it is so cold outside. Did you hear this morning the crunch, crunch of the dry, cold snow under your feet? Did you taste that first warm sip of coffee or tea and feel it go down your throat into your chest and stomach as you enjoyed your morning routine? Can you appreciate that you came here by vehicle that either you or someone else drove when many people on this earth will never even be in a car? When you leave here today, will you have some sweets, some savories, some family time, some time watching football, a little nap? Can we be more appreciative of the little things in our lives? Oh, yeah, we can. And it takes deliberation. It takes intentionality to be keyed into the little things. But I challenge you, because puzzle pieces are little things, and yet puzzle pieces fitted together reveal something much greater than what one little piece can show. If we live aware, we have a better chance at finding God's purpose in our lives. If we buy into the fact that the things that happen to us, around us, with us, are not random, but they have meaning, then maybe we will be able to appreciate through our awareness that God is constantly working in us. The second takeaway is this. God can. God can. You might be saying, can do what? You could finish that sentence however you want, because it's all correct. God can do anything. God can do anything with anyone. God can do anything with anyone for any purpose. In this situation, God even took something that is mundane, the act of drinking, and turned it into something special. Drinking. We eat and drink every day. And yet, do we ever sit back and marvel at that process? Very rarely do we. And yet, God didn't just allow drinking to happen here. He made it miraculous. I need you to experience this with me. So, we have a little prop 
So if the praise team and, and ushers, any helpers could, uh, I hear it, okay? Everybody's going to get a water bottle. Please do not open it yet. Do not open it yet. And no, it's not wine, okay? <laughs> I'm not that good. All right. If somebody could let me know when everyone has one. Please do not open it. You probably know why I waited till this point in the sermon to distribute these, because water bottles are noisy, and I know better than to give you something to play with while I'm talking. But All set, thank you. All right, no opening of it yet. So remember, we are going to live life aware, paying attention to those little things, and God can. He can take even mundane things and turn them into something incredible. So on the count of three, I am going to ask you to Squeeze your water bottle um, for about 10 seconds where everybody's doing it to make that crackly noise. And I want you to listen to the sound of the unified squish, squish, crunch, crunch of these water bottles. We'll do it for about 10 seconds. When I raise my hand, you please stop. Okay, one, two, three, go. All right. I hear this. And I hear not water bottles, but it reminds me of the babbling of water through a brook in a mountain stream. It reminds me of the falling of rain, washing away the dirt and cinders left behind from a snowstorm and our treatment of it. It reminds me that we have sound and the ability to hear. Did you listen? Now... With your very strong, capable fingers and that happy little thumb that God gave us to make us more powerful than other creatures on this earth, please open your water bottle. Did you feel the flexing of those muscles, the gripping of the thumb to the fingers, the plastic that somebody manufactured with the little ridges so that we could have a grip so we would not lose hold of what we're trying to do? living aware of those small things and something as mundane as opening a water bottle. God can and did give us all of those things that we can appreciate. Next, collectively, I want you to take a nice drink. Wait to do it. I want you to take a nice drink, and as you put it into your mouth, let it wash around your mouth. Feel the coolness. Swallow it and feel the cool sway as it goes down you. And picture it going into your body and nourishing the parts of your body that need refreshing. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> 
picture that living water coming into your living body and making a living difference. God can renew us with water. God can do anything and everything. Please screw the lid back onto your bottle and understand this, that not only can God refresh us now, he can keep refreshing us. And the water that is left in that bottle will be yours for later today, when you need it again, because God can. The last application that we can pull from this text is this. Believe. Believe. One word. The imperative. Believe. We must believe. Because if we live aware and we have the faith that God can, then we must believe. Just as the disciples believed when they saw the water turn to wine. Just as Mary believed sooner than that, that Jesus could do something about the lack of wine. Belief is the natural outcome of witnessing God's presence so clearly. Belief is the natural outcome of witnessing God's presence so clearly. Get this circular shape, if you would. If we live aware, paying attention to the little things that are part of the bigger miracle, the signs pointing to a greater end, and we know that God can do anything with those little moments, then we're going to believe that not only can he do anything, he is doing things. Right now, there are miracles happening. They may not have the big neon lights and drum rolls that we would like to see so we don't have to work so hard to believe. But if the very first miracle that Jesus did was this quiet one that we didn't even know happened until it was over, then how can we have any doubt that those same types of miracles could be happening right now in our lives, in healing, in hope, in renewal, in nourishment, in cleansing, in starting over? If we live aware and we believe that God can, then we are going to see signs of his love for us everywhere. And isn't that worth saving the best to last? Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the word that gives us hope and centering and focus and belief. May we walk out of here today nourished, and aware that you are always, always with us. Amen.